welcome aboard this week's podcast of Dudes Dish Disney. No cupcakes, sparkles, or glitter mouse ears here, just Dudes Dishing Disney. This episode of Dudes Dish Disney is sponsored by Magic Vacations. Magic Vacations, discover the magic of travel. And now your hosts, the Dudes of Dudes Dish Disney. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dudes Dish Disney. Joining us today is Jonathan, our producer and resident tech dude. What's going on, everybody? And also joining us is Ryan, our co-host and the number one Disney dude. What's up, dudes? And I'm Congo Carl, former Jungle Cruise skipper. And this week, we have a very special guest, a fellow MVP dude, our own resident historian, our history dude, Brad Rogers. Brad, welcome. And why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Dude, thank you so much for the um, introduction there, Carl. Uh, for long, as long as I can remember, I've been a huge fan of all things Disney, especially spending time at my favorite place to vacation, which is Walt Disney World. Um, I can remember being in the third grade and I did a book report on Walt Disney and just learning about him as an individual and all the adversity that he overcame is what kind of started my passion for Disney, even at a deeper level than just visiting the, the theme parks themselves. Um, and that's what kind of sparked my interest in learning anything and everything that I possibly could learn about Walt Disney, the Walt Disney Company, and specifically the Walt Disney World Resort, as I have visited there almost 50 times. Not quite yet, but I'm, I'm hoping that October 1st, 2021 will be my 50th visit to Walt Disney World as I celebrate the 50th anniversary. That there. would be so, awesome, dude. That's awesome. So, and so proud to be a part of the Magic Vacations team. Our topic is uh, Dudes Drink Disney. We have a series in this in this category, but specifically today's is a historical perspective about drinking around the world. Well, isn't that funny? We just so happen to have an expert with us. Not only are we having Brad with us as the historian guys, but I'm going to jump in and tell you guys that uh, you're in for a treat because our Jungle Cruise skipper himself has quite the bit of history on the world showcase and uh, a drinking around it. So uh, I'm, I've been looking forward to this episode since we started taping personally. I really enjoy some of uh, uh, Carl's stories and I'll let him kind of take it away from us here. But uh, Carl, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your history with the world showcase? Well, um, I'm delighted to, and it's, it's, it's a fond memory that I've shared with a lot of dear friends and a lot of new friends too. So uh, some of you may or may not no, but I was in the first group of college students that started the Magic Kingdom College program in 1982. And I, um, and I always wanted to work for the mouse, but uh, was excited to be at a co-op through Northeastern University and get to do that in 1982. And what was more exciting is I did a double co-op, which mean I was staying there till January 1983. And I would actually be in Florida when Epcot opened for October 1st, 1982. So you can imagine a, in a program like that, I made friends in college, but then all the international students came over to open up uh, Epcot and I made a great group of friends there that I still stay in touch to with this, this very day. And here was my plan after working here is I was going to take the first three days off that Epcot was opened to go and enjoy it. And I did. And you can imagine the crowds and how big everything was there and, and the hoopla around it. Opening day, I spent uh, with a guest just at Future World. Um, the attractions were longer to see. The lines were huge. Um, you know, Universe of Energy was a 45-minute ride at the time, right? And the second day, we spent at World Showcase. And we went around and had a few beverages and had lunch at one spot and dinner at one spot. And I, I remember, you know, World Showcase specifically, seeing the signs that displayed, you know, coming soon, Israel, Morocco, Spain, Equatorial Africa, and get excited about not only the countries we're seeing, but what was coming. So then on the third day, um, October 3rd, 1982, there was a bunch of co-workers and myself who decided to go, hadn't been to Epcot, and we decided to go back. And I explained to them that the day before, that I said, you know, I was in World Showcase, it was fun, I had a beer in four different places, 
And then I had lunch at one place with some beer and wine and then had dinner with some beer and wine. And they said, wow, you went to six out of the nine countries at the time. Remember, there's 11 now, but back then there was only nine. Uh And we looked at each other with a glint in our eyes and we said, hey, I wonder what would happen if we stopped at every country and had a beverage in every World Showcase Pavilion. And we said, let's do it. And we did it. We called it Drinks Around the World. We then went back to our living quarters and shared the concept with the 200 other college students who were there. They said, that's a great idea. And for the weeks to follow, um, naturally, everyone had to try it. And it was a a lot of fun. So at the end of the graduating program uh, from Disney management at Disney University, um, when they called you up to receive your diploma, I went up to, uh, it was my turn in line, you know, to go up and get that, uh, that Mouster's degree, as they called it. And the instructor introduced me as follows. He said, now our next graduate, the inventor of drinking around the world, Carl Moore. So, <laughs> and everyone chuckled and laughed. And there you have it. There's the story of how I got uh, credited with it for what I did on October 2nd, and then copying it with a group of friends and expanding it on October 3rd. I think my favorite part about that story, Carl, is that you guys actually stopped and said, I wonder what would happen if we drank at nine different places. Like, gee, who knows what might happen? Probably get squashed. (laughs) And well, again, you know, I was 19 then and there was only nine countries, not 11. But uh, so it was a little easier, but I've done it many times. I think I got a big kick out of it one time preparing for a trip when my daughters had both reached 21. And one of them said, hey, dad, do you know there's this game in Epcot where it's called drinking around the world and you go to everyone? I said, know it. I invented it. (laughs) So uh, so to take around your daughters for it was something now. So there that's kind of the background there. But so today's topic. you know, again, we realize there's plenty of information. There's vloggers and bloggers and people talk about tips on, uh, on how to drink around the world. And everyone's got their opinions about this non-Disney sanctioned practice of treating World Showcase as a huge pub crawl. So we wanted to put a different spin on it today. And that's why we have Brad. So today, what we're going to do, it's the Dudes Drink Disney historical perspective of drinking around the world. And we're asking each dude here today to not only... Uh, tell us as they visit each country, you know, what their favorite beverage is or recommend their favorite uh, cocktail is in that particular country, Uh, but to include some little uh, known history or information about that particular pavilion, any other backstory or changes it's seen over the past 40 years, or little known facts. So, um, So that's kind of the objective and our little spin on drinking around the world. So, which way, gentlemen, are we going to tour on drinking around the world today? We're starting. We always go left. 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 Okay. We always go left. All right. So, Brad, tell us the origins of World Showcase and what it was intended to be. It was intended to be a permanent World's Fair to showcase pavilions, the culture of all these different countries from around the world. That's kind of how we got to this point. So I think it's important for our listeners to understand why is the World Showcase a part of the Walt Disney World Resort? And it kind of goes back to connecting that bridge as to how we got the Walt Disney World Resort in Florida. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why we have the historian with us. (laughs) I can't wait to hear what kind of history we got coming after a few drinks getting us. (laughs) Because I have a feeling there's going to be some really cool backwoods stories that happen after a few uh, cocktails go. Okay, we're going to start off with the Mexico Pavilion. And I know, Ryan, that's your favorite pavilion. Why don't you take a stab at that? Yeah, so anybody who's listened for a while knows that I love the Mexico Pavilion. Uh, You know that I will go back to the Mexico Pavilion to drink all day if I have to. Uh, I do enjoy the other pavilions as well, but there's just something about it for me that I've always liked. So uh, Mexico was one of the original nine uh, uh, pavilions. Um, It's got out front of it, it's got a Mesoamerican pyramid on it. It's kind of like a, a, it's a temple to, uh, it's a copy of a temple to Quetzalcoatl, um, which is the god of life, uh, which is obviously very rich in the Mexican culture. Um, And then actually, as you go inside of it, it's kind of themed like a a twilight uh, uh, lit Mexican village. 
um, which is great. I really love that feel to it. Uh, uh, I love walking in and seeing the San Angelin restaurant, uh, which is kind of overlooking the lagoon and another uh, Mesoamerican pyramid uh, and volcano um, down below. You can jump on and on the Grand Fiesta tour uh, as well inside of there, which is a you know a fun ride with uh, uh, the three caballeros. Ryan, do you know do you know why they built that village inside in a night setting in Mexico? I do not. Again, go back to 1980s when Epcot was, you know, coming out. Uh, the middle of the day when people would be touring the park in Mexico would normally be siesta time. And there wouldn't be people out in restaurants and having fun in a theme park if you were really in Mexico. But that really is an activity reserved for the evenings in Mexico. So by putting that all inside and having that busy market square, and that night atmosphere with all the hanging lanterns, it was very appropriate to see lots of people mingling and doing everything you do at a pavilion and realistic to what it would be if you were actually in Mexico. Yeah, that makes all the sense in the world to me. And, and the markets in there are very true to you know Mexican culture as well, um, which I really enjoy. And I also enjoy the shops that are, are on the outsides. Uh, we'll get to my favorite little shop and uh, spot inside of there in just a moment. Um, but one of my other little fun facts is that the um, illuminations used to actually be controlled from the top of the uh, pyramid as well, just because of the vantage point that they had. There's a small office up there where they would actually control the old illumination show um, from up there. So that's that's kind of a cool uh, thing as well. Um, so, uh, you know, I was talking about San Angel Inn. For me, it's it's one of the most romantic restaurants in all of uh, Disney World. It, I just really love the feeling of sitting out there, the dark lights, the river, the volcano. Maybe volcano doesn't speak volumes of romance, but it's it's a cool backdrop uh, and it's unique. Uh, and then, you know, there are some other restaurants as well in the pavilion. Uh, uh, you've got, um, you know, you've got a cafe across, you've got uh, um, a bunch of stuff to choose from. But uh, in terms of drinking, right, let's get to the drinking because we all know that that's my favorite part. If you're not going in the pavilion, uh, there's the Chosa de Margarita, which is outside. It's an outdoor bar. Uh, it's kind of more of your standard margaritas that you can get frozen around the rocks, lime, strawberry, mango, or you can do a combination of all three. Uh, they got a couple specialty ones as well. Not really my cup of tea, the specialty ones outside. But if you really want to tie one on and do drinking around the world right, you got to go inside. And when you go inside, you got to go to La Cava del Tequila. Uh, we've talked about La Cava del Tequila uh, on prior shows. Uh, so you guys all know that all three of us, I, if I remember correctly, this was one of the few that all three of us actually agreed on in terms of being just the place to go to get a drink um, for different reasons. But when you go inside, there's there's really, to me, there's two ways, there's three ways to do La Cava del Tequila. You can take a shot of any one of the tequilas that they have, and I will tell you the bartenders have extensive knowledge of all the tequilas. So if you don't know what you're doing, you can talk to the bartenders and they will hook you up. That's one way that you can do it. Uh, you can also have the specialty margarita, which is the Casa Dragones, uh, which has got uh, orange and, and agave and lime and some black salt. It's a little bit on the pricier side, but it's a great drink. Um, or you can do what's really cool, uh, which is the, the La Cava Negroni. To me, the La Cava Negroni is, if you're drinking around the world, that's the drink you have to get. Uh, it's uh, and a, a tequila Negroni is really going to be tequila, Campari, vermouth, and then they age it. They age it in small barrels. Uh, and then actually what's really kind of cool about this is they tell you if you want to find out about it, you have to search the hashtag La Cava Negroni on Twitter and Instagram to see what the latest version of it is. Uh, it's literally listed on the, on, the on the menu as hashtag La Cava Negroni. Um, now Ryan, you're such a fan of Mexico. Have you ever started and finished drinks around the world in Mexico? Uh, I have once, yes, there you go. actually, I think. <laughs> I've got to try to remember. That was a rough day. Um, but uh, uh, definitely for me, La Cava Negroni is the one to start with. Um, that's a great starting drink uh, because by the time you get back to Mexico, you're probably not going to remember what you're drinking anyway. Um, but a really cool touch uh, is that it's actually served with a frozen jalapeno inside of it too which is really kind of neat. It's just, a, it's just a different look and a different feel, but a really awesome drink and it's, it's worth having. So um, 
that's yeah, that's great. my take on Mex on the Mexico Pavilion. Let's let's keep moving. I think we're going to Norway next, right, let's, Carl? Let's go to Norway. You know, and uh, I'm happy to talk about that. So I don't know if any of you know what was existing on opening day where Norway is today. Do any of you know? Am I going to stump our historian? Does anyone know what building was there opening day where Norway is today? I'm All right. A, I'm drawing a blank, Carl. Okay. Opening day right there were the Swedish restrooms. There was restrooms built and designed for Sweden because the original plan over in that area was for the Scandinavian pavilion, which was to be Sweden, Denmark, and Norway all together collectively mm -hmm. in that pavilion. Uh, eventually, as so many different things happened with different sponsorships at Epcot, uh, they didn't get their act together. And the only businesses that wanted to get in was Norway. So it became the Norway Pavilion. Um, and they kept renewing their sponsorship up until 2002 when their sponsorship ran out uh, and it became exclusively Norway by Disney. Now, they still have the cultural program there, but, um, but that was it. So it, the Scandinavian Pavilion morphed into Norway. It opened, uh, it was the last pavilion to open. It opened in 1988. And the reason I wanted to share that with you is the um, World Showcase was 82, 83. So in 1988 was the fifth year reunion of the World Showcase Fellowship Program where all my friends were there. And they invited me down to that full weeks of activities, including one of those activities was to have a classroom day where we were required to wear suits and ties. And that day, our classroom day, was held in the meeting room or the boardroom on the top floor of the Norway Pavilion. And they had a glass window there, and you could look out and see the old Maelstrom ride going, look, it was like it was back over the falls, and then back, the boats used to peek out over a waterfall there. And we saw that going all day as we were doing our presentation. So um, my first exposure to the um, Norway Pavilion was behind the scenes up in that meeting room. And that was 1988, and what they had done for us, the international students, they unveiled for us a map and the design plan of uh, Disney, Euro Disney. And we got to see all the architectural drawings and hear us speaking on what was coming. And of course, all our international friends were excited about that. And there was a couple of them that ended up working there too. Um, so that was very very exciting for me to be on sort of the inside track for all of that. So that's some of the history. I'll tell you something else that I'm disappointed with the changes. The Asker House was uh, a great restaurant when it first opened. It was a true smorgasbord with all the official, you know, uh, Scandinavian type foods and the classic foods, not only the marinated herring, but the, the meatballs and really good uh, beers uh, like Renier's that was from Norway. Here's the problem with drinking in Norway today. There's not much that is from Norway that you can get to drink. They serve Carlsberg beer, that's from Denmark, and they see, serve Einstock beer in a couple flavors, and that's from Iceland. The only true drink that is there, that is the national spirit of Scandinavia, is Aquavit. And, uh, you know, some people say that there's a lot of great things you can drink rather than Aquavit. It was designed to go with all those crazy foods that they eat over there, things, you know, hard to pair foods like, you know, pickled herring and the strong cheeses and things like that. So that's tough. But so if I'm going to do drinks around the world, uh, if I want to be kind of close to Scandinavia, I'll just grab a Carlsberg. Uh, that's the better of the three or four beers they offer on draft. But if I want to say I'd done it truly and had a drink from each respective country, you do a shot of Aquavit, and that's how you move through it. And we'll move around um, to the next country, which is China. Brad, what, what can you tell us about China? So I am so excited, Carl, to share with you uh, about China. In fact, what you may not realize, and uh, hopefully all of you have experienced, Reflections of China, which is the movie that they show about the Chinese culture and, um, inside of that 360-degree pavilion. Um, it was one of the very first American films that was actually filmed in China. Um, in fact, it was one of the very first looks 
American film crews to film Tiananmen Square and the Forbidden City um, when they were putting together this film for that um, uh, Reflections of China uh, movie. Uh, also, China, if I'm correct, Carl, China was the first pavilion. Um, China was the first country to agree to a pavilion being located at Epcot, if, if memory serves me correct. They, they were the first. Um, there, I tell you, I was so frustrated. My last visit to uh, Epcot uh, was during the um, International Food and Wine Festival. And right there in the China Chinese pavilion, they had the, the vendor that was selling the um, cotton candy that almost looked like a big bouquet of, of flowers. It looked so beautiful but also so delectable. I know this might not sound very doodly, but I really wanted one. However, it seems like every time I walked past the Chinese pavilion, the cotton candy machine was down. So it was very disappointing. However, however, with that said, uh, I will tell you there are many great aspects about uh, the China pavilion, just like there are with all 11 of the pavilions. Uh, the, the different markets or shopping opportunities there, what you may not know, the two restaurants that are located there were not there on opening day in 1982. They weren't added until, I think, 1985. Um, and that's the Nine Dragons restaurant and uh, Lotus Blossom. They weren't added until um, 1985. Um, I think, though, if I had to pick a drink from the China Pavilion, to continue on with as we continue our journey around uh, the World Showcase would have to be the Sing Tao beer. Um, I don't know if either of you dudes have tried oh, that choice. before, good but choice. that would be my choice there. So we're gonna move on to our next country, Germany, where every day is Oktoberfest in Germany. Um, I have so many fond memories of this place with friends and family sitting at those long tables at the beer garden, having a great time. So a little history on the German pavilion before we get into the imbibing, which is one of the pop most popular places to, to drink, you know. Um, Germany and China were the first two pavilions to, to get um, signed a deal, uh, to your point. They were right on top of each other. I think June, China was first and Germany was a week later. And it was because Disney want, knew they had to have a big venue to serve a lot of people food. And they saw culturally, you know, Oktoberfest and the big beer halls, that was gonna be a perfect place to be able to feed a lot of people quickly. So when the beer garden originally opened, an opening day I was there, um, it was a uh, table service restaurant. It wasn't a buffet, it was a table service restaurant. And they had unbelievable classic German food. My personal favorite, was they used to bring out this huge, beautiful pork shank for two, the Schweizbraten, and uh, had garden vegetables with it, and it was wonderful. The original show there had a seven-piece oompa band, all the parts uh, played, in addition to some talented musicians, and they also had four authentic German dancers, um, excuse me, eight, four women, four, four men, that would go out and do all the authentic dances, but they'd also pull you out to dance on the floor with them. They'd pull guests out and get the party going with all that lively music. Originally, when they had set, set that up, their vision was for to have two different bands come in and play 30 to 40 minute sets and keep the party going. Uh, it became too much and too expensive with the, with the music union to do that. Um, so, you know, eventually it's morphed into what it is now where they, you know, they play about uh, a 15, 20 minute set every 40 minutes. So, but in the old days, you could go in there and eat and drink all day, a couple of sessions and be in there for an hour and a half, two hours and see them play two sets. It was wonderful. Uh, and real Oktoberfest came around, Disney would throw additional entertainment. The germ, the pavilion itself, if you think about Epcot opening up in 1981, can anyone tell me what was going on in Germany in the 1980s? think about was, what was 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 that the berlin wall the berlin no, wall later. didn't come down till 1989 right. so during the 80s germany was still east and west 
And this was a dilemma for Disney. And it's rarely mentioned as an aspect of the pavilion that when it was designed and created, Germany was a nation that was divided. Um, so the area that Epcot promoted referred to was simply Germany, not East Germany or West Germany, even though that was the, the appropriate names for the country. And it's fairly clear though, by the design of the building and what they offered, it was meant to be West Germany. But me, even more specifically to that, the way they drew heavily from the traditions of Bavaria and Southern German and that fairy tale architecture, which Disney was so famous for building his castles off of, they really went there. Um, there was plans for an attraction on opening day. Um, and it was announced in the 1976 annual report, uh, the Rhine River Cruise. When you walk into the pavilion, there's two archways. The archway to the left goes to Oktoberfest uh, Beer Garden and the, it's connected by Summerfest restaurant. And to the right, there's another arch, which is an exit. But right off in that arch, there's a mural right now. Behind that mural is a set of eight wooden doors that I saw the opening months of Epcot. And they were going to build this Rhine River cruise uh, and they never came up with it. Now rumors say that you know they had built the attraction. They only built half of it, the loading station. They didn't build the rest of it. So it never got finished. Um, but, uh, but, you know, they were to have another boat ride. Um, the pavilion's always been sponsored by Beck's. So they're always kind of the beer for Oktoberfest and everything on there. But Schmidt Schoen is the wine company. They were original sponsor and they have great wines. In the beer garden, they had a great wine list with all these German wines on it. So if you go to the wine keller today in Germany, um, that's one of the places that you can do, not many people know this as part of drinking around the world, is there's a wine activity called the Wine Walk at Epcot. And you can go and get a glass of wine that travels with you at the wine keller and also do it the Castello in Italy and the Vins de France in, wine, in, uh, in France. And for $32, you get a six two-ounce pours, so basically two wines per country. So it's a nice way to, uh, if you've got your date with you and she doesn't want to drink, you know, beer with you and all the crazy drinks, she can get uh, for $32, six glasses of wine along the way uh, and try them out in some of the best wines from some of the best wine producing countries in Europe. Me, if I'm going to Germany and I'm doing that, I'm drinking beer right out of the Stein glass. I'm stopping for lunch or dinner in Oktoberfest. I'm eating. Uh, it's not as good as it once is, but the show is great. The food is great. Clinking glass is great, and there's so many fond memories. Um, now, Germans are known also for their white wine, not their red, but also they have a very rare and delicious August Kessler Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir is really popular these days. They serve it at the restaurant. They serve it in the wine um, keller. Um, I would definitely grab a glass of that or recommend it to someone who's a wine fan. So big fan of Germany. My hat's off to them. Prost, everyone. Moving around World Showcase, next up is Italy. Brad, why don't you tell us about Italy? Carl, it's interesting that Italy is next on our tour because of the similarities between the Italy Pavilion and the Germany Pavilion. Just like with Germany, how there was the original plan for the Rhine River Ride to take place in Germany, there was also such a plan for Italy as well. The Italy Pavilion was styled off of the city of Venice. And so originally the Disney Imagineers had a vision for a boat ride to take place there in Italy as well. Also in the early stages of it, there was originally a plan to build um, a portion of the Italy Pavilion to um, reflect the Roman ruins. Um, that plan got scrapped, but originally there was the plan for that to take place. You know, it's interesting um, that you mentioned the uh, Venice, okay? Because if you look at World Showcase and the way that's set up, one of the things my friends who were from Italy that opened up World Showcase, they laughed about, is it was reversed. The tower and the piazza in real life are on opposite sides. Mm -hmm. and so they, they chuckled about it. That, you know, again, these pavilions are not supposed to be exact replicas. They're supposed to represent the overall country. But um, Italy's was very authentic, except for the fact that it was the mirror image. Yes. A new restaurant that has popped up there as well is uh, Via Napoli. It is an uh, authentic pizza restaurant. Um, they are 
They're famous for bringing the Neapolitan pizza to the Walt Disney World Resort. And as they try to maintain their authenticity, uh, an interesting thing that they actually do that many people do not realize is they have water shipped from the state of Pennsylvania to Florida just for them to make their dough with. The reason why they use this is because the water quality that they get in, in Pennsylvania is very similar to the water quality in Naples. Um, so that whole breakdown, as, as you know, anybody that's visited Florida, the water quality in Florida is not like it is in many other parts of our country. Um, but they have found that Pennsylvania's water is very similar to that that's in Naples. So they actually ship water there to go into the dough so that maintains that authenticity. Um, I will tell you, as we talk about drinks in um, this pavilion, I don't know if you're a big wine person or not, but there is an actual wine lounge in the Italy pavilion where you can actually do some great wine tastings in. So if we're doing a, a true drinking around the world at Epcot, my recommendation for Italy is go visit that wine lounge and have yourself some fantastic tastings. There's some Barolas there and some Bordellinis that, uh, and some Vellapicellas that'll just knock your socks off there. And they, they do, you're right, they serve little uh, uh, appetizers and uh, accoutrements with them too. So it's a great experience. So thanks, Brad. Now, as we say ciao to Italy, let's go to the United States. John, why don't you step up to the plate and tell us what you're going to do about the history of the United States Pavilion, also known as the American Adventure. All right, so the uh, American Adventure Pavilion, first things first, this uh, pavilion uh, was originally not really supposed to happen. Um, basically, they made some changes around this side. They're going to do a pavilion. And uh, based on the amount of countries they had, actually 36 countries actually backed out on this when this happened. Um, so it kind of changed the whole perspective of what the showcase is going to be. Uh, but little kind of backstory for the pavilion. Uh, it is a colonial style mansion. Uh, kind of founded in Independence Hall, kind of the old Bostonian um, State House, uh, Colonial Williamsburg. There is over uh, 100,000 bricks used on the building, uh, made from Georgia clay, tinted uh, to add uh, age authenticity. Uh, the interior floors are made from marble and copper, so very kind of colonial, uh, that kind of very nice aspect. Um, cool thing with this uh Area is right across from the uh, main building there. There is a uh, theater. It's called the American Garden Theater. There's all kinds of things that happen there. The biggest thing uh, for the America Pavilion, there uh, is a uh, show uh, group rather called the Voices of Liberty. It's an eight-part acapella singing group that performs very American folk songs in the rotunda of the uh, American Venture. Again, this area, it's it's incredible. If you ever get the chance to hear any of these folks sing in there, it is one of the most beautiful sounds you will ever hear in your life. The acoustics are fantastic. Yes. Yes, they are absolutely, absolutely incredible. Um, also in the American Venture, there is a uh, show featuring 35 audio animatronic figures with uh, a really nice digital reproduction uh, system on a 72 foot high screen, uh, kind of goes through a bunch of patriotic songs and kind of tells the history of uh, the United States. Only our tech dude would give us the specifications of that screen. And that of course. Yeah, the tech dude's getting <laughs> awfully techy over here. Hey, you, th this is what happens. You give me a, a thing like that, I'm gonna go crazy and get the whole tech specs on it, man. What are you drinking when you come to the American Adventure? So I'm sticking with uh, something very near and dear to my heart. Being from the Boston area, I'm sticking with the Sam Adams Boston Lager. You can't go wrong with that. Uh, great beer. Uh, again, very Bostonian beer. Uh, gotta love it. Uh, at the same point, a new restaurant uh, that they've got in the area. It's called the Regal Eagle Steakhouse. Very, very, um, not so much steakhouse, but a kind of barbecue joint. Uh, burgers, um, ribs, kind of stuff like that. Um, it all looks absolutely delicious. They needed that too. I mean, the most American of foods, right, uh, is barbecue. 
really you know, it's represented for different parts of our country. There's not that many good barbecue places on property. It certainly symbolizes our country and they did a great job with it incorporating the Muppets and it's much better than the crazy hamburgers. I mean, you had hamburgers competing with this great foods from around the world with some of the most world renowned chefs and we had hamburgers in the American adventure. Thank goodness we've got some good barbecue. And let's yes. be honest, if we're going to have hamburgers in the American Adventure, maybe it should be themed after Chicago a little bit more than off, uh, after Boston. You know, like, <laughs> like I mean, I agree that the, the barbecue is a much better choice for the American Adventure. I can't tell you how happy I am they made that change. That's a good call by you guys. Well, that's good. So after we, uh, after we hit up the United States, we're going to move on to Japan. And uh, John, you did such a good job with the United States. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Japan, that pavilion, and what to drink? All right, so first things first, before we get going here, I'm going to grab myself a nice glass of sake from the Katsura Grill and let you know that the uh, Japan Pavilion was always planned to be part of the World Showcase, but the pavilion went through many changes before it was uh, created. As early as 1977, with the original plans for all the World Showcase pavilions, uh, there was going to be an Omnimover attraction that, at the time, Every pavilion was going to have this almost identical semicircular building, but inside each of these buildings, we're going to have the uniqueness to each country. That we're going to take uh, guests on tours of a uh, wide variety of different things within the country. For Japan, it would have been the landscape, landmarks, uh, you name it. So once the decision was made that each pavilion would have its own unique look and theming, the uh, and, uh, Imagineers chose um, the design for the traditional pagoda, which conveniently actually originated in China. So once this error was discovered by the Imagineers, they had to completely redesign the uh, pavilion. Uh, in the final version of J the Japan Pavilion, uh, they were inspired by various structures from all over the different regions of Japan. So in Japan, there are two main buildings that occupy the pavilion. The first large imposing building modeled after the Imperial Palace in uh, Kyoto, known as the Hall of Ceremonies. This building uh, holds the Mitsukishi department store on the first floor as the Tokyo Dining and Tepinado on the second floor. The back of the pavilion is themed to look like a fortress. The fortress is surrounded by a moat, which is actually pretty cool. Uh, currently, uh, there is a Kidcot station in here. Basically, it's a little space for kids that want to do a kind of little arts and craft project. Kind of nice way to kind of relax, get the kids kind of just to kind of take a breath, you to kind of relax, you know, whatnot. So I'll tell you something about that department store. So Michikoshi department store is the major primary sponsor for the pavilion. And when I was in the... Uh, American program and all the uh, World Showcase folks came over, the members for Japan were actually employees of Michikoshi. So they were getting their paycheck from Michikoshi, not from Disney. Of course, they went through all the Disney training and had their name tags, etc. And I believe that's still true to this day, that the key managers and people in there, the cultural representatives, are direct employees uh, rather than, you know, the traditional people being employees of Disney. That is really cool. Um, one cool thing, I don't know if you guys are aware, um, there aren't actually any true featured attractions in the pavilion, but for many, many years, they constantly talked about different options that they're going to consider putting in there. One really cool one they considered putting in there was a indoor roller coaster based off of uh, Mount Fuji that had very, very much similarities to uh, the Matterhorn out in Disneyland. Um, for whatever reason, budgets, you name it, they just never actually occurred. Uh, a few years later, they tried to do a second idea, which was uh, a Godzilla-style uh, uh, coaster, uh, where the lizard would be attacking the guests in the car, was considered as well. Again, this one didn't actually happen as either, unfortunately. So thanks, thanks, John, for giving us that rundown of Japan. And now we're off on the road to Morocco with Ryan. So Morocco is easily my second favorite um, in all of the World Showcase. And I really, for me, I think the reason why I love it so much is because there's so much fine detail in Morocco that's overlooked or not known about by a lot of people. Um, Morocco was the 10th pavilion built. 
Uh, it was built in 1984. So it was really the first additional uh, pavilion built after the original nine. Um, so what I really like about it is when you walk in, there's just beautiful mosaic, mosaic tiles and architecture throughout the entire pavilion. Uh, and there's a really good reason for that because uh, the Morocco government, the, the king of Morocco and the Moroccan government actually is the only country that actually still sponsors directly the pavilion. Um, so they actually, when it was built in 1984, King Hassan II actually sent Moroccan artisans and craftsmen to come over and oversee the building of this and actually built some of those mosaic tiles. That's not a normal thing for them. They don't just go around having uh, Moroccan tiles built and mosaics built around the world. So it was a very big uh, win for Disney for, for them to actually bring that down there. Um, and, you know, a lot of the buildings are, are themed after major buildings in Morocco as well. But to me, like, that's really kind of the coolest part about it is just knowing that Morocco actually had a hand in building uh, in building this and still and still to this day oversees it. Um, so that that's kind of fun. Um, um, there are a couple restaurants. Uh, Restaurant Marrakesh is, is one and the Tangerine Cafe. Uh, those are both really good restaurants. And then the newest is the Spice Road Table. Uh, that wasn't there when it was built originally, but it has been added since then. Um, and then, you know, with that, there's a lot of really unique drinks and things like that. Uh, as far as like beers, there's not much to go with. They have a few few domestic beers actually, so they're not very Moroccan at all. But they do have the Ca Casablanca, um, which is a Moroccan beer. Um, I typically would go more towards a cocktail uh, if I'm in the Morocco Pavilion. Um, now. After we've drank it, you know, whatever it is now, seven, eight, nine countries, uh, typically I'll go for something more uh, on the lighter side, which I know kills Carl, but uh, I'll go for the Sahara Splash, which is a vodka Midori uh, cranberry and splash, uh, a splash of soda. Uh, to me, the it's The important just, thing you said there, Ryan, is Midori, which yeah. is a real Moroccan liquor. So that gives you big points for being authentic. Yeah, so I mean, the authentic, authenticity of it is great. Uh, it's also, you know, in the Florida heat, it's nice to have a little bit more of a, a lighter drink at this point in your, especially if you start left, you're getting towards the end of the tour here. Um, uh, you're literally maybe even getting close to crawling at this point, so that's why. But if you wanna do it and do it right, my man Carl here has informed me very graciously in the past that the Marrakesh Express is probably the drink that you want to do. Now, Marrakesh Express is for those people who like rum and more rum because they have two different types of rum in the Marrakesh Express. And then they kind of throw in some orange and pineapple in there too. But those two, the two rums, and, and they're very generous with it as well. The rum is uh, uh, really, if you're trying to get the full experience and have the best and doodliest drink, that's the one that I would go with. Uh, one more fun fact for you guys that's not really necessarily to Morocco, uh, but the Twilight Zone of Terror can actually be seen at an angle. Uh, the top of the, the tower is uh, actually designed to blend into the Moroccan architecture. Um, so what's really cool about that is if you're looking from anywhere else inside the World Showcase, you wouldn't necessarily realize that the Tower of Terror is there. But if you're in the right angle at, at, in Morocco, you can actually tell it's the Tower of Terror. Uh, that's the Disney Imagineers at their finest trying to hide things and not be able to see things from other parks. Uh, but like I said, I'm all about the fun facts and, and Morocco's got at least three of them. I'll right? give you so, one. I'll give you another fun fact in Morocco. An opening day of Epcot, Morocco was one of the countries, one of the only four countries with signs saying coming soon that actually came. Yeah. And they did have built a, the restrooms were built, the Moroccan restrooms that are still there today. And the funny thing is we go to our next country, France, there is still to this day, no restrooms in France. They did that deliberately because if you go to Paris, there are no public restrooms. So all of my friends used to get a kick out of people when they'd ask where the restrooms were, they say you'd have to go to Morocco to use the restroom, right? There's no restrooms in France. Now that's gonna change with the growth and addition that's coming on because this next pavilion has that certain je ne sais quoi. So John, why don't you tell us a little bit about France? All right, so uh, like Carl just mentioned there, the France Pavilion, uh, it was one of the original ones that opened. Um, when you uh, walk in there, uh, they can uh, enter the pavilion by crossing a metal bridge 
Uh, this bridge was supposed to represent the Point des Arts, which is the first metal bridge ever built in Paris. When you walk in, the front of the pavilion uh, is themed to look like Paris between the years of 1871 and 1914. Uh, and then towards the back of the pavilion, uh, it's supposed to hand incorporate small towns and provinces in France. So kind of look like the small normal communities that look all around Paris other than the big city. Um, the focal point of the uh, pavilion is to recreate the Eiffel Tower, uh, again, which obviously was not built to normal scale, but this one is a one-tenth scale of the original. When the pavilion was originally opened, it featured two table restaurants, Le Chef de France and En Petit Café, uh, which both restaurants were extremely popular and due to the demand, Bistro de Paris was built uh, in 1984, the new table service restaurant uh, incorporated on the second floor of Le Chef de France restaurant, uh, replacing the official uh, office buildings that were previously housed in that spot. Uh, another change that happened in uh, the restaurant came in 97 when Disney decided to merge with En Petit Café with uh, Le Chef de France. The restaurant reopened, expanding uh, of a new version of Les uh, de France de Chef later that year. Moving up many, many years, uh, in 2012, the uh, France Pavilion Bakery uh, closed and was moved to a new larger building. The restaurant eventually reopened in January 10th of 2013 as Les Halles uh Paris uh, in its new location. Uh, the biggest change that's happening to the pavilion is the addition of a new area that's going to be featuring uh, a, a carbon copy of uh, Remy's Ratatouille Adventure, which there's already one that exists in uh, Disneyland Paris. Basically, it's uh, a dark ride that goes through uh, the exterior of uh, the restaurant surrounding uh, the Parisian Plaza. Very, very cute uh, trackless ride. Uh, I would highly recommend giving a watch uh, some of the POVs that are out there. Uh, it's going to be a fan favorite many for many, many years to come when this ride does open. I'll tell you what, of all the pavilions, I could spend a, I could spend a half a day in France. If you think about it, if you get there in the morning, they have that great bakery for breakfast, right? You can go in and see the, uh, the daytime show, the new daytime show. Uh, based on Beauty and the Beast in uh, the uh, the theater. Then you can have uh, lunch at one of the cafes. You can ride Remy. There's going to be a new uh, crepe restaurant in the back near Remy's. Um, then you can have dinner, and then you can go to see Impressions de France, which the theater converts into the original French film in the evening. So that place has three attractions, okay? Um, three sit-down restaurants and two or three takeaways, not to mention where you're going to tell us to drink there, Jonathan. It's just a fantastic place. Oh, yes. I almost forgot about the drink. Cannot forget about the drink. Don't ever forget the drinks. I know. Oh, I know. So I'm going with uh, the orange slushy, which is uh, wow. Grand Marnier, rum, Grey Goose, uh, orange, and orange juice from Les Vins de Chef de France. Great drink. It is a little on the sweeter side, but uh, depending on what you're drinking before, it kind of gives a nice little change to keep you going. My wife and I were out there for our fifth anniversary. We, we did a cruise and we actually stopped in Disney for a day. And we just spent a day at Epcot. And we got one of those 98 degree days with humidity. And it was just like you took two steps and you thought you were going to die. So we literally parked ourselves in the, in the French pavilion and started downing uh, the Grand Marnier orange slushies and the Grey Goose Citron lemonade slushies all day. I mean, they were, they were cold. They were delicious. They got us drunk. It was awesome. We had a great time literally at one point, And it was actually cool. It was the day that um, uh, France won the last uh, world cup. So what was really cool is because as everybody knows, when uh, uh, the people who run or work at uh, the pavilions are traditionally from that country, so uh, soccer in Europe is huge. And when they won the World Cup, they literally came running out of the pavilion and they started celebrating in the streets. And I felt like I was in France celebrating the win of the World Cup. It was, a, it was an absolute blast. And meanwhile, awesome. Belle is reading a book over by the fountain, you know, just, just hanging out, you know? So uh, anyway, I wanted to throw that in because it was a fun time and, and whatever, but definitely worth, the slushies are 100% worth, worth the, uh, the time and, and drink. You, you have something you like about uh, 
uh, France, Brad, before you move on to the UK? Uh, just, you know, Disney Imagineers are so great with their, um, their force perspective and uh, just adding the Eiffel Tower there. Well, then you're going to cross that bridge over to, to uh, the United Kingdom and, uh, and tell us what we can see and do there historically. Absolutely. Well, I, I'll tell you, you know, the World Showcase, uh, one of the great aspects of it, in addition to sampling the, the drinks and the food from all around the world, but also is the, the people interactions, um, interacting with people from these different countries. Um, one of my favorite interactions in the United Kingdom Pavilion is the British Revolution. Um, I, every time I'm there, I find myself um, at least, and sometimes I get caught up in it and stay there longer than I had intended to, uh, depending on if it's one of those days like what Ryan was just describing, where the humidity is so oppressive, you don't want to go anywhere. But I, I find myself there enjoying some great, great music from the British Revolution. Um, the the U, UK Pavilion has some great eats. If you've not taken advantage of those opportunities. So at the Rose and Crown, you've got some great dining options, uh, whether you're in the mood for some shepherd's pie, some corned beef and cabbage, um, some bakers and mash. They have so much to offer. If you're in the mood for fish and chips, that's right around the corner from there. There's also some great shops in that area. A great photo op that my family takes advantage of every time we're there is the classic red phone booths. Um, it's a good, great spot to take a family photo or even take a selfie to post to social media. Um, there's so much to do there. Uh, the different stores are, are awesome. Um, I will tell you, if I had to select a drink to enjoy in the UK Pavilion, it would have to be the Welsh Dragon. Um, dudes, have any of you ever experienced the Welsh Dragon? I have not. No, I yeah. to stick to the black and tan. So, if I did at this point, I probably don't remember it. Okay, well, it's it's a little bit on the fruity side, but it is a good cocktail, um, especially if we, we've been going hard all day long, and we need to start lightening it up a little bit. Now, if we're still in that hardcore phase, then we might want to try the bumblebee. Carl, have you had the bumblebee? I have had the bumblebee. I must admit, it's it's a nice start to your day. <laughs> Gotcha. I don't know why you guys drink all the hard drinks in the beginning. Like to me, you dole out the taste buds a little bit so that when you get to the hard drinks at the end, right, you don't even taste them anymore. They're just like, yeah, put it down, whatever, it's fine. But maybe that's why I black out more often than you guys don't. <laughs> that that might be the reason. Well, and it's you know, it, pace is important. But uh, Br Brad, so after drinking those, you got to head over to Canada, right? And uh, oh, abs absolutely, absolutely. And Canada's um, one of my favorite places. From a pavilion standpoint, what I love about it is it portrays so many of the Canadian provinces all in one. And, and most of the other pavilions are only particular to a particular region. There may be some nuances, but basically you feel like where you're at. But distinctly, Canada has the trading posts of the Northwest Territories, the totem poles of Alberta, uh, the the Hotel uh, de Canada is representative of the Chateau Laurier and Ottawa, Ontario. You've got Bouchard Gardens from Victoria, British Columbia. Columbia, you've got the mine, which is representative of the Yukon Territory. So you have a lot of things going on. So I'll tell you some things that, that I have. We've got some very dear friends who, and, and some great stories from the Canadian Pavilion. And um, on opening day, most of the tourists thought the Canadian Pavilion was supposed to, seeing all that, that the mountain range was supposed to be representation of the Canadian Rockies. When in fact, it was built to re represent another outcropping of, of, of uh, mountains called the Canadian Shield in Ontario. It's also known as the Laurentian Plateau. And I've seen that and it does look like it. But, you know, everyone saw the waterfalls in those mountains and thought Canada, oh, the Rockies, so eventually the cast members and management and all the workers gave up and said, okay, you, you want to call them the Canadian Rockies, you can call them the Canadian Rockies. They were done trying to re-explain to everyone what it was really supposed to represent. Um, now the restaurant, which is so popular, um, the Cellier, is very different 
than it is now. So like Germany went from a sit-down restaurant to a buffet, Le Cellier was a buffet, or they called it a buffeteria, which was very popular style in Disneyland. And it had that style. It was sponsored 100% by Labatt's Brewery, and it only carried Labatt's products, Labatt's 50 and Blue. And of course, today, it's now converted to a sit-down. So it went the opposite way of what Germany did as far as the, the type of restaurant. And it's very, very popular as a as a steakhouse now today. But I'll, I'll, getting back to that, I, the story. So picture this, Labatt's um, Beer and Brewery is sponsoring the pavilion and the restaurant. Uh, you go down the back stairs and you head towards Circle Vision 360. There was a mine there and there was a sign over the mine that said Moosehead Mine. Now, at that time, Moosehead Beer was getting popular in Canada. And I think it was the number three selling import beer in the U.S. And it was far ahead of Labatt's in the U.S. than Labatt's was. And Labatt's was sponsoring the Canadian Pavilion because it wanted to get its name brand out here and sell more beer in the States. So this was two days before they opened up. And the, uh, the sponsors themselves were taking a tour of the sites, uh, you know, two days before opening. And Labatt's made them change that name of the mine and they changed it. And it stands today as the Maple Leaf Mine rather than the Moosehead Mine. So if you're going to drink today in Canada, um, Labatt's is no longer a sponsor, but they do have Labatt's Blue and Moosehead are both served. So that's kind of a, a big circle in, the, in, the, in 40 years. Um, I like... The Niagara region wines, I have some friends who live up there in uh, Niagara-on-the-Lake, and there's some great Canadian wines. I also like the Lot 40 Canadian whiskey, which is served all over the pavilion. But when I'm drinking in the Canadian pavilion, I'm drinking La Fin du Monde. La Fin du Monde is a Belgian-style beer that's made in Chambly, Quebec, and it's made because the settlers up there, when they came over, uh, the Canadians and Vikings and Frenchmen and settled there. They, when they saw that land sticking out, they thought they reached the ends of the world. So um, I prefer La Fin du Monde when I'm in the Canadian pavilion. And it's, uh, it's not a light beer. It's 9% uh, alcohol volume. So it's a great finish to your trip around the world with, uh, with your drinking around the world. So that concludes our tour. Any final parting words uh, about drinking around the world? Uh, pace yourself. It's uh, definitely a challenge. Uh, don't take it lightly because it will uh, come back and kick you if you don't take it, take it that way. That's right. How about you, Ryan? Yeah, just remember that um, I was born the year that it was opened and Carl was already drinking there. Uh, I just want to point that out because Carl, Carl's made it clear to everybody that I make fun of his age all the time. So I want to make sure that continues. Um, yeah. So, uh, Carl, I was literally born like three months before it opened. I, I hope that makes you feel good. It, it does, Ryan, because it'll just make it all the more meaningful when we get to do it together and That's drink the, around the world. That is the truth, sir. I'm looking all forward right. to it. So, Brad, thank you so much for being our uh, guest historian, dude. What can you add as your final parting thoughts on drinking around the world? I cannot leave this without sharing this tidbit. Although we know Epcot's true acronym, a lot of people like to claim that Epcot stands for every person comes out tired, especially when it's a 1.2 mile walk around the World Showcase Lagoon. But after we've spent this day drinking around the world showcase, it could be argued that every person comes out tipsy. So until next time, thank you, everyone. Later, dudes. Later, dudes. Later, dudes. Later, dudes. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Dudes Dish Disney. Please check us out on social media on Facebook.com 
at Dudes Dish Disney, on Instagram at Dudes Dish Disney, on Twitter at Disney underscore dish. Please visit our sponsor, Magic Vacations, at magicvacations.net. More than just a travel agency, Magic Vacations has over 100 Magic Vacation planners committed to bringing you White Glove Concierge service. Using a Magic Vacation planner allows you to spend more time making memories and less time worrying about the details. For all of your Disney, Universal, Cruise, and Global Travel, go to magicvacations.net. Magic Vacations. Discover the magic of travel. <laughs>